that we typically want to talk about. There's half of the audience here that is pretty convinced it doesn't apply to them. That's the female half. And the other half of the audience is saying, dear God, please, 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 please don't let this apply to me. Now, if you're a Christian here and you find a passage like this a little bit confronting, a bit uncomfortable, uh, just spare a thought for the person who's walked into church for the very first time this morning, who already thought Christians were a bit weird, and now they're thinking, what have I got myself into? Why on earth are we going to talk about circumcision? How could this possibly have anything to do with us today? Well, I'm here to tell you quite a lot, actually. Because this is a passage that is relevant to you and me, whether you're a man or a woman, a Christian, or someone who's still trying to work out what they are. This passage is for you because it's not really about circumcision. It's a passage about how God treats people who fail to meet his standards. And the Bible says that is every single one of us. We are all in the same boat there. So don't tune out. Let's take a look at this passage. Uh, It is relevant to you, even if it seems a bit foreign and strange. Uh, But I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us understand what we read now. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is useful for us. That in it we see you. We see uh, who we are and how we can live as your people. But sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it seems strange. So Lord, would you help us see what you would have us see this morning? Be with me as I speak. Help me to speak truth. Whatever I say that accords with your word, help it to sink deep into our hearts. And Lord, if I say anything that is untrue, help us see that it is untrue and help us quickly forget. We pray this because we know that your word is powerful to change us. And so we ask that you might change us now. Amen. All right, I want to begin this morning by getting you to imagine something. Imagine for a second that you get home this afternoon, you turn on the TV and you see Vladimir Putin. Nothing unusual there. He's, he's kind of making an appearance on, on the TV quite regularly these days. But this time you notice there's something different. He's got tears in his eyes. And as you start to listen to what he's saying, you realise he's apologising. Between deep sobs, Vladimir Putin is admitting that he was wrong and he's apologising. He now sees that he should never have invaded Ukraine. He should never have taken Crimea. It was all wrong. He deeply regrets it and he is begging the world for its forgiveness. Would you believe him? Of course you wouldn't. I don't think I would believe him. I would assume that it's a stunt and that he's actually trying to do something even more evil than what he typically would do. You see, I think most of us would just dismiss him right off the bat. You'd say, no, you're you're lying. You're not sorry. At the very least, I mean, maybe some of you are more gracious than I am, but at the very least, we would be deeply suspicious, wouldn't we? We would want to see some very compelling evidence to back up his apology. And even then, you would would have doubts. You would be unsure. Now, why is that? 
Why would we find it so hard to imagine that an evil man could change? Well, the reason we find it so hard is because deep down we don't really believe that it's possible for anyone to change. Now, we hope people might change. We wish, we even kind of dream that people might change, but none of us really think it will happen. Bad people just don't become good. Evil people don't become anything less than evil. People just don't change. It's why segments of our society are calling for you know, tougher prison sentencing. We want our justice system to get tougher. They see a revolving door of prisons where criminals come out, get released, and then just re-offend and head back in prison. People don't change. Putin won't change, criminals won't change, and when we look at our own lives, we start to see the same thing, don't we? Because I'm assuming, it may not be the case, but I'm assuming that there are many of you here this morning that get frustrated that you don't ever seem to get better in the areas that you fail. You're still struggling with the same things that you've always struggled with. If you're a Christian you'll still be struggling with the same areas of sin that you've always struggled with. You're still just as selfish as you've ever been. You're still just as angry as you've ever been. You're still just addicted to money or addicted to porn or addicted to your own glory as you've ever been. And maybe you're here this morning and you're starting to wonder whether you will ever change. Will you ever be able to actually overcome sin? Will you ever be able to actually love God with your whole heart? Will you ever be able to love your neighbours with the same energy and intensity that you love yourself? Can people like you really change? Well, friends, Genesis 17 is a chapter that gives us hope that we can change. In fact, it's a chapter that shows us that even the worst of criminals can change. Even Vladimir Putin can change. Bad people can become good, but not by themselves. No one has the resources within them to actually grow themselves good. It can't happen. And the story of Genesis is proof of this. Because if you've been reading through the book of Genesis, the first 16 chapters of this book is basically a catalogue of humans being terrible. It's humans behaving badly. Everything starts off great. Chapter 1 and 2, yeah, it's all good then. God creates a beautiful world. Adam and Eve are there. Everything's great. But then, chapter 3, everything goes wrong, doesn't it? And they set off a downward spiral into evil when Adam and Eve first rebel against God. As you get to chapter 4, Cain kills his brother. You get to chapter 6, human wickedness becomes so bad that God pushes the reset button. In chapter 9, after the flood, well, Noah gets plastered and he humiliates himself in front of his whole family. In chapter 11, the people of the world are united to try and overthrow God. You see, Genesis is just a catalogue of humans behaving badly. They are completely incapable of sorting their own mess out. The more they try, the worse they get. Maybe you feel like this in your own life. The more you try and overcome sin, well, the more deeply into the the downward spiral you descend. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abram. And there's a brief moment where you think maybe, maybe things might change. Maybe Abram will be different. Maybe he will be the person that humans were created to be. But, but no. Abram's just as disappointing as the rest of them, isn't he? In chapter 12, he lies to the king of Egypt and gives his wife away to protect himself. And last week, last week we saw Abram slip to a new low as he gets impatient with God, sleeps with his wife's slave girl in an attempt to have a son, in an attempt to get the very thing that God had already promised him. Friends, the story of Abram is just like the story of the whole of Genesis. People going from bad to worse. But it's what God does in Genesis 17 that gives us all reason to hope. And this chapter gives us three reasons to hope. You'll see them on the back of your outline if you've got one. Firstly, when Abraham fails, God renews his commitment to Abraham. Secondly, when Abraham fails, God renews Abram's identity. And thirdly, when we fail, God renews our hearts. So let's have a look at these three points. And the first one is that God renews his promises to Abram when Abram fails. You see, in chapter 16, Abram messes up completely, doesn't he? He rejects God's promise He accepts his wife's plan to sleep with the slave girl in order to get a son. It's a messy situation. And you might expect God to give up on it. You might expect him to say, you're done. You're an idiot. What do you think you're doing? You might expect him to blow right up. I told you I would give you a son. I promised you that. But instead you go and cheat on your wife. What were you thinking, Abram? You might expect God to be angry. You might expect God to just be done with Abram, give up. But what does he do instead? Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. You see, God doesn't abandon Abram. He doesn't give up on him. Instead, he appears to him. He goes and seeks him out. And then he says, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And and do you see what that says? See, it's kind of perfect. On the one hand, God doesn't say, you idiot, you've messed everything up. There's no hope for you. He doesn't say that. But he also doesn't say, good job, Abram. You nailed it. You're doing fine. He he doesn't. He doesn't destroy Abram, but nor does he say, act as if nothing happened. He says, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. He says that, that back there with Hagar, that wasn't right. That's not what walking before me faithfully looks like. That was bad and there's going to be consequences for your actions. And we see those consequences played out later. Abram faces all sorts of pain because of his stupid plan. But God gives him another chance. He says, that wasn't right. Walk faithfully. That was bad. Be blameless. 
But he also does something else. He doesn't just give him another chance. God actually reminds Abram that the promises are still there. God had every right to say, you screw it up, that's the deal off. But no, God reaffirms the promises. He renews the covenant. Abram has stuffed up big time, but God is still going to do all the good things for Abram that he had promised him. Now, I remember as a kid, there was a day when mum busted me stealing sugar from the pantry. We didn't really have junk food in our house, so if you wanted to get a sugar fix, like, you just had to take sugar, uh, which is what I did, and mum busted me. And as anyone would do, what, like an eight, nine-year-old kid, I don't know, uh, I, I denied it. I you know, probably still had the sugar like, on my chin, I was crunching, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. She had seen me. But I denied it. Now, the problem was that that night, we were going to be going out for dinner. We didn't go out for dinner all that much. I can't remember where we were going. It might have been fish and chips or something like that. But I was excited for that. And I knew that if I admitted what I had done, mum would say, no, nah, we're not going out for dinner. No special treat. Well, mum was persistent. She knew what I had done. But she wanted me to admit it. What were you doing in the pantry? And eventually I caved. I admitted my sin. And I still remember what my mum said. She said, what you did was wrong. I don't want you to do it again. But we're still going to go out for fish and chips. I still love you. And I'm still going to do this good thing with you. And friends, that's exactly what God does with Abram. What he did was wrong. He, God doesn't want him to do that again. That was a mess. Don't do that again. God says, I want you to walk with me faithfully. I want you to be blameless. And because I love you, even though you don't deserve anything good from me, I'm still going to give you these good things. God renews his covenant promises to Abram. It's like he's renewing his vows, but Abram is the one who's cheated on him. And so he says in verse 4, As for me, this is my covenant with you. These are my promises to you. You will be the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. The whole land of Canaan, where you're now living as a foreigner, that will be yours. God pours out the good things on Abram. All the things that God had already promised, he reaffirms. But that's not all he does. He renews the promises, but then he also renews Abraham. He he reaffirms the vows, but then he makes a new man of Abram. And it begins in verse 5 where God gives him a new name. He says, no longer will you be called Abram, which means father. You're going to be called Abraham, which means father of many. You see, God wants Abram to know that because of the relationship that he has with God, he now can take hold of these promises. And so now anyone, anytime someone calls his name, he's going to be reminded of these promises. He's going to be the father of many He has a new identity because he has a new name. But there's something else that happens in the second half of this covenant. 
Because you see, a covenant has two parts, doesn't it? Remember, we saw this a few weeks back. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. There's promises that each of them make to each other. Just like me and my landlord. Landlord promises me a house. I promise to pay rent. In your marriage contract, if you're married, the groom makes promises to the bride and the bride makes promises to the groom. There's always two parts. And here we see the two parts. Because up in verse 4, God says, As for me, God speaking. And then in verse 9, God says to Abram, As for you. As for me, here's all the things I'm going to do. I'm going to give you lots of good things. As for you, Abram, here's the thing you must do. And if you compare the lists, they're not very equal. God says, as for me, Abram, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you a big family. There's going to be kings coming from your family. I'm going to give you land. Your family will live with me forever. I'm going to give you everything. As for you, Abram, here's what I want from you. What's Abram going to give to God? His, his foreskin. What? As for me, I'll give you everything you've ever wanted. As for you, get circumcised. What is going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's not going on here. I think it's pretty clear, but this is not payment, all right? This is not a transaction. There is no chance that anyone is thinking, hey, if I get circumcised, I'm going to get all these good things. It's not a, a one-for-one one transaction there. Abram does not have any right to say, God, I got circumcised, you owe me. That's not what's happening. Being circumcised doesn't earn Abraham the things that God has promised him. But circumcision works on a number of levels. You see, first of all, circumcision was a sign of commitment to God. It was putting some skin in the game, so to speak. It's a way of saying, if God is committed to me, well, I'm going to be committed to God. And I'm going to show that commitment physically. Secondly, circumcision was a sign of belonging to God. It was a physical marker of people that belonged to him. It's like branding cattle, but... More painful. But finally, circumcision was an expression of trust of God. So it showed that you were committed to God. It showed that you belonged to God. But it was also a way of saying, I trust God. It was a way of saying, I don't deserve God's blessing. I actually deserve to be cut off from God. I deserve to have the knife come a little closer. I deserve to lose my manhood. I deserve to have my family line end right here. But despite all my failures, I trust that God will be faithful to me because he has promised it. You see, all of the, the commitment that Abram makes to God is all anchored on God's as for me. You see that everything that Abram offers God is only because God has offered him everything and so in the face of Abraham's failure God renews his promises and God renews Abraham's identity he gives him a physical reminder of God's promises and faithfulness to him because as for me as for you but now what about us 
What's this all got to do with us? Well, the good news is that we no longer need to be circumcised. God has said this is an everlasting covenant. He said, Abraham, this is to apply to you and all your descendants. But many generations after Abraham, a king was born into Abraham's family, just as God had promised. A descendant of Abraham who was circumcised just like Abraham was on the eighth day. But friends, Jesus, this king, Jesus did something that Abraham couldn't do. He walked faithfully with his father. He was perfectly blameless. And Jesus not only sympathised with our failures, he died for them. You see, Jesus was cut off so that we don't need to be. But he did more than that. Because not only did Jesus die to forgive you for your sins, not only did Jesus bleed and die for your failures, he also gave you the resources to overcome them. I think often as Christians, we we can have this very simplistic idea that Jesus died to forgive us and now we just kind of keep living in sin because Jesus forgave us. Jesus did forgive you and he will keep forgiving you and he knows that you will keep failing. But Jesus has ushered in a new covenant. And the covenant sign of the new covenant is no longer circumcision, but baptism. A sign pointing to the fact that you've been washed clean of sin but also a marker that Jesus has gifted you with his spirit. Jesus and his spirit is actually working in you to help you overcome sin. He is working in you to change you, to make you more and more like your blameless saviour, Jesus. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that you can change. If you're here this morning and you're frustrated that you keep doing the same sin that you've always done. If you're here this morning and you're frustrated that you're still just as angry as ever. You're still just as got little self-control as ever. The news is that you can change. But that change isn't going to come about because of some, you know, Resources within you. It's not going to be your own determination that will change you. It's God's promises to you that will change you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you could be as evil as Putin, you could be struggling with self-control, you could find it hard to love God, whoever you are, you can change. Because Jesus promises to change you. So friends, this morning, take heart of the way that God relates to unfaithful people. Abraham's story is one that just reminds us again and again and again how kind God is to us, even though we fail. So take heart. Be reminded, as Abraham was, that if you are in Christ, if Jesus is your saviour, you're a new creation. You have a new identity. You're a new person. You belong to him and your sin won't change that. That is incredible news. 
But finally, friends, take heart that Jesus loves you as you are, but he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. He promises to change you. He promises that his spirit is at work within you, helping you to put sin to death, helping you to love what is truly worth loving, growing you to become more and more like your saviour, Jesus. Friends, you can change because he has promised to change you. Let's pray. Father God, we can so easily be too accepting of our sinfulness. And Lord, as we look at this story, as we look at the way that you treated Abram, we see that our sin is not okay. We see that you do not, uh, your, your plan for us is not that we keep rebelling against you, but that you want to renew us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would renew us. Remind us that you are the one who has promised that our identity is in you and not in something that we have done. Remind us that by sending Jesus to die for us, by giving us your spirit, that you are making us each day a little bit more like you. So, Lord, finish that work in us, we pray. Change us so that we might be blameless and walk faithfully with you. And we ask this because it's good for us and because it brings you glory. And it's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.